Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That video is great for a variety of reasons, but the reason I like it so much is because the guy that you can see with an aerial view, he is not a runner. I don't know who he is, but he just kind of clumping along the way I do, right? Um, it means every man is in the race, and uh, I, I like it. Um, so to continue the theme of Dan uh, this morning... Um, I was checking out the adult community groups, just walking around and seeing the classes and how full they were, and it was full. So thank you for going to those. They really are great. People are enjoying them. And um, then I was standing out in the back, and Dan had come out of his classroom, and somebody walked up and said, Dan, the clock on your wall is running way too slow. In other words, you went too long. So I'm just telling you up front, if I go too long, the clock on the wall is slow. Um, no, it really isn't. When, when I grew up as a kid in my house, there was a little box about that long, about that wide. And it had these skinny cards in it. And what the skinny cards were, were scripture references. It was called, you've probably seen it before, a promise box. I think it was my mother's. And she had good reason to pick out a promise every day, I'm sure, because she had three rambunctious, irritable boys. And I was at the very top of that list, not only in age, but in issues. She needed a promise every day, and she would pull a card out. I also remember as a student in Bible college, we had a legendary Old Testament professor. At least he thought he was legendary. Um, and on one occasion, 
in his attempt to help us contextualize passages and not take them out of context and do improper things with them. He said, routinely we use promises from the Old Testament or the New Testament and claim them as ours and they have nothing to do with us. I don't recall exactly which passage he used, but I want to think that it was Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I have plans for you. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you. Do you know how many thousands and tens of thousands of people have claimed that verse for themselves personally? And he looked out at the class. It was a large class of about 200 students and said, that promise is not for you. I watched several girls leave the class in tears because they held on that promise for their life. And as I thought back, even then, about his statement, I understand he was trying to help us not color outside the lines. I understand that he was trying to emphasize that the Bible was not all about me. And I embraced that. But his approach was inconsiderate and wrong. Why? Because scripture is not just singular. We take scripture routinely and make applications to our life that's part of its power. So there was a sense in which that young girl who left in tears, though she might not have been a great exegete, was hurt legitimately because she had clung to that as a promise from God. It's interesting how promises or prophecies in the Old Testament and the New not only have double meanings, have personal application, but they have layers of meanings. So for instance, let's think of a couple of prophecies. Let me refer you to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 and verse 6. We hear the author of the book of Hebrews saying this. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. That's a quote directly from Psalm 2, verse 7. And he continues. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is a promise from Psalm 110, verse 4. So the author of the book of Hebrews, and this is just only one example, takes an Old Testament passage which I fully believe was not written in the mind of the author as it related to Jesus, who he'd never seen, but actually was probably written in terms of some historical reality of kingship in Israel, something about the Davidic kingdom. 
It's not uncommon in the so-called messianic Psalms for the church to identify in those passages references to Jesus, even though the author might not have intended them to be references to Jesus. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But the words, according to the New Testament, have layers of meaning. And one of the layers of those meanings is found in Hebrews. Or consider verses like this. Oh, I know you're very familiar with these. They come up beginning in November every year and in December. Verses like Isaiah 7, 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey. When he knows enough to reject the wrong and chooses the right, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike anything you've ever seen since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, let's remember something. Almost every single Christian church in this nation and around this world is going to use that passage as pointing to Jesus Christ. Are they improper to use that passage? No. Is that exactly what it meant in the context? No. It was a prophetic utterance in the words of Isaiah that he may have fully understood and may not have fully understood. It had a historical context, arguably, that had something to do with the nation of Israel and the deliverance from captivity. But we read back into the text, rightfully so, the person of Jesus Christ. Or how about this one? Again in Isaiah, this time chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. I'll begin with verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the deep land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice as the harvest, as warriors rejoice when the dividing the plunder in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And then these words, I I want you to, to see the shock in these words, okay? He's talking about a historical account that he's predicting concerning Israel. And then these words, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, 
And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can any of you hear those words without thinking about Jesus? Probably not. When those words were first uttered, did they think about Jesus? Probably not. They were thinking about deliverance and it was going to come. They were thinking about their contemporary history and they were in the middle of it. That's one layer, one layer of meaning and a second layer of meaning is about the Messiah. Is it a contradiction? Not at all. It's what you might call overlapping promises. So now let's move to the passage uh, that was read this morning. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, there is an interweaving in this passage of current, future, and even eternal themes. And it's not easy to sort it out because the promises overlap. First, let's set the context with these interweaving themes of Jesus. Jesus, before he utters these words, has just come into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, the thing we'll celebrate on Palm Sunday. People all over the place, including his disciples, are throwing their cloaks on the ground and palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, save us now. And the crowd's cheering. It couldn't be a grander celebration of the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem. And right on the heels of that, what happens? Jesus goes to the heart of the city and he immediately gets in debates with the religious leaders. He gets into controversy with the religious leaders. And then in this context, Jesus pronounces woes on them and even woes that associate with the disciples. Then his statement concerning his lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you if you'd have let me like a hen spreading her wings for her chicks, but you would not. What's Jesus seeing? He's seeing the future destruction of the temple. That's why whenever the disciples start to leave Jerusalem proper, one of them or perhaps several of them look back at the city, which by the way, glowed in the sunlight, especially the temple. And they said, master, look at that. Isn't that grand? I don't want to believe that Jesus was always a downer. But in this moment, if they were trying to burn, you know, 
leapt up his emotions. He just smashed it down to the ground again. He didn't even say, oh yeah, that is a beautiful temple, but. He just looked at the temple and said, not a stone's going to be left. Destruction's coming. Now, try to put yourself in their place, will you? Maybe I'm wrong. But they'd been through a little bit of difficult time with Jesus. The high, then the abject low. And now all they want to do is just look at the temple and be excited about God's presence. And Jesus takes them down even further. What a guy, huh? It's funny how the truth hurts. Then he launches a confusing flurry of predictions. All they want to know is when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the end of the age? We're not sure about what they thought when they uttered those words. They may have thought, I think it's probably likely they thought, that all three of those things were going to be compressed together. That Jesus was going to round the hill once again, come into Jerusalem for the second time in their their lifetime, and with the command of God, establish his kingdom. Maybe not. I got a feeling that's what they were thinking. Jesus basically takes it apart. And he speaks of all kinds of stuff, which must have been dizzying to them. He says, this is the way it will be. Not talking so much sequentially as just thematically. This is the way it's going to be. There's going to be wars and earthquakes and rumors of wars. There's going to be all kinds of disaster before the end times. You know what people who are really into prophecy often do? They start looking at whatever war is on the horizon and saying, this must be the one. They start looking at a particular political figure and they say, that must be the Antichrist. I I think that's ill-advised. Because I think the passage is basically saying this. There's going to be wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be rumors of war. Because that's where we're living. In a fallen world. Furthermore, your perspective, disciples, and your perspective, church, should not just be, oh, history's repeating itself again. Your perspective should be, those are birth pains. When's the last one? We have no idea. But eventually, according to Jesus, the new age will be birthed. And as you look forward to the new age, like a woman in The anticipation of the birth of a child nine months after conception. She has periodic pains. Jesus is saying, look around you and be aware that the new Jerusalem will eventually be birthed. Your perspective ought to be history is a revelation of birth pains concerning the end. 
I, I think it's just fascinating what we do with these passages, isn't it? We take them and we put them in all kinds of contexts and we think we have it all figured out. And we don't. There's a third part of this, what I'm calling overlapping promises that I want to refer you to as well. It's promises concerning the kingdom. The already not yet promises concerning the end times, some of which have happened, some of which are still to happen. The already not yet prophecies concerning the Old Testament of the Old Testament concerning Jesus and the Messianic age. Some have transpired, some have not. Already, all yet. And now we think about Paul's epistles just for a moment. The way in which Paul embraces the tension of the kingdom of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And the way in which it's already here, but not yet. You know these verses well. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There's a prince of the power of of the air, put in other places as well, that dominates the world we live in. No wonder there's wars and rumors of war. No wonder there's evil everywhere. No wonder we think it can't get worse because the prince of the power of the air is at work. But Christ is still king. Already and not yet. Paul puts it in bold relief when he says this. Because of things like this. The first was Ephesians 2. The second passage is from Ephesians 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the evil scheme, devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. By the way, suggestion, you're not up to it. The spiritual forces in the heavenly realm are stronger than you. So put on the full armor of God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord. My friend, says Paul, there is a powerful reality in this world. It's the prince of the power of the air. And Christ is king over everything. So, as for now, not for later, While Christ is already king, but not completely, you, like a good soldier, should arm yourself and be ready to do battle. 
Now, if you uh, think it's a little heavy on the prince of the power of the earth, Paul gives you a word of encouragement in 1 Timothy. A benediction that we often read. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's no secret that I love C.S. Lewis. Love the Chronicles of Narnia. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia almost like a scarlet thread, there is this theme. Things are not the way they ought to be. But Aslan's the king. And on occasion, justice reigns. And sometimes Prince Caspian is the one who executes the justice. And the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the kids are on a ship and they've gone to this lost island. There's a guy there called Governor Gumpus. What a word, huh? They made that one up. He was good. Governor Gumpus. Governor Gumpus wasn't a governor. He sort of was, but nobody knew where he got his credentials. But he did rule the island. And one of the ways he did it was being in cahoots with a slave trader. He also was a person who was an overwhelmingly lazy bureaucrat. Who whenever the time came for an appointment, he would look at his appointment book and say, no, we can't discuss that. Except on the second day of the month, always Thursday between 2 and 3 o'clock and never before. It didn't make any difference how important the issue was. Governor Gumpus was that way. Prince Caspian and his cohort go in to greet Governor Gumpus, understanding that things have gone badly for these islands. And Governor Gumpus starts in. And all of a sudden, Caspian's cohorts grab the table that Governor Gumpus is behind and they just pick it up and throw it and everything comes flying off the table. And Caspian takes his seat behind the table as the rightful prince of these islands. Does anybody see anything there corresponding to Jesus? I don't know if C.S. Lewis meant for me to see it but I can't help but think of Jesus walking into the temple turning the tables upside down said you have desecrated this place this is supposed to be a house of prayer and for a moment and I emphasize the word moment for a moment the kingdom of God came to earth with that single act. Did it change history forever? Were there no more people who used other people, especially with religious accoutrements? No, it's happened over and over and over again in history. But in that moment, Jesus said, no more. I am already here 
not yet completely in the kingdom, but you will stop this. It seems to me that's a good analogy for where we are in our already not yet lives. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Uh, The first thing I want to say is that in order to understand promises like Isaiah or the Psalms, in order to understand them rightly, we need to trust the New Testament authors, even if their interpretation is not obvious. In other words, sometimes I've read the New Testament authors and said to myself, where did you come up with that? It's a good question, but it's not a position that I should challenge. I take the whole canon to be the word of God. So those New Testament authors had a crystal clear insight into one layer of those promises which overlap. And I ought to be able to open my eyes and see them. You know how I do that? More often than not, by faith. Because it's not utterly clear to me. I think the second conclusion is that the reality of Scripture is that it is overlapping layered promises. And frequently, those overlapping layered promises can be quite personal when the Spirit of God ministers to our hearts by faith. Unlike my professor at Bible college, I hope I've never robbed anybody of Jeremiah 29, 11, because God could use it powerfully in their lives. Because promises overlap. Third, I think, and I've already referred to this, I think we ought to be very humble about our understanding and prediction of future events and the coming of the kingdom of God. Fourth, I have two final points. Fourth is this. There's two really encouraging themes in all this. The first is this. According to these overlapping promises, history is going somewhere. We're not stuck in a cycle of inevitable repetition. We're not in a circle that we can't get out of. History is going somewhere. There are plenty of people today and many years ago who had an absolutely different view of history. One of the great Stoic philosophers uh, put it this way. I want you to listen carefully to his words. He says, concerning the world in the future, then again, the world is restored anew. That sounds encouraging. But he goes on to say, in precisely the similar arrangement as before, the stars again move in their orbits, each performing its revolution in the former period without variation. 
Socrates and Plato, who he knew well, and each individual man will live again with the same friends and fellow citizens. They will go through the same experiences and the same activities. Every city and village and field will be restored just as it was. And this restoration of the universe takes place not once, but over and over again, indeed to all eternity without end. I don't know, but when I read that, I'm overwhelmingly sad. Really? Is that all there is? The clear description by Jesus tells us a different story. History is not just a circle. It's going somewhere. As a matter of fact, history is going somewhere. And the somewhere is the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection are not just for you and me, as profoundly true as that is. His death, burial, and resurrection redefine history for eternity. History's going somewhere. And at the center of it is the redeeming nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So take heart. It's not meaningless. It's packed with meaning. Led by the Holy Spirit, let's unpack it. The way in which Christ's kingdom is already with us, but not yet. And praise our living God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are uh, very grateful, as always, for your word. But we're already um, aware that your word is, is a blessing. What we need to add to that is that we're grateful for your timing. We're grateful for the way in which the weight shapes us spiritually, helps us to anticipate things that we couldn't create on our own, gives us hope and a reality that is to come, gives us life even in the midst of death because you're the king and we're your subjects and we worship you with all our hearts. Give us patience and understanding as we follow. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.